पदम केवल ज्ञानमूर्ति दंडातीत गगन सदृश तत्तमशादिलाक्षमचल सर्वधी साक्षिभूत भावातीतुणरहित We salute the leader of our soul, through whose grace our ignorance is dispelled, whose nature is that of absolute reality, who is the giver of all peace and happiness, who is the embodiment of knowledge and liberation, who is beyond good and evil. pain and pressure life and death and all pairs of opposites who is all pervading like the sky who is the one goal of our spiritual aspiration who is one without a second eternal immutable stainless and pure who is the constant witness of the changing phenomena of the universe May we through His grace see what is noble and uplifting. May we through His grace hear what is pure and spiritual. May we through His grace go beyond darkness and illusion and realize truth in this life. Peace, peace, peace be unto us. and to all living beings i shall read to you a few lines from the gospel of sri ramakrishna a devotee asked the master sir what is the nature of life after death master keshav sen who was a great religious leader of that time keshav sen also asked that question as long as a man remains ignorant that is to say as long as he has not realized god so long will he be born but after attaining knowledge he will not have to come back to this earth or any other plane of existence the potter puts his pots in the sun to dry have not you noticed that among them there are both baked and unbaked ones when a cow happens to walk over them some of the pots get broken to pieces the broken pots that are already baked the potter throws away since they are of no more use to him but the soft ones though broken he gathers up he makes them into a lump and out of this forms new pots in the same way so long as a man has not realized god he will have to come back to the potter's hand that is he will have to be born again and again what is the use of sowing a boiled paddy grain it will never bring forth the shoot likewise if a man is boiled in the fire of knowledge 
he will not be used for creation. He is liberated. This morning, I intend to speak to you on reincarnation and liberation. According to Hinduism, reincarnation, love, karma, and liberation are intimately related. Conscious actions of an average man is the result of desire. Action produces result, either in this or in a future birth. Now, the cessation of desire is liberation from this apparently endless chain of birth and death. One cannot prove the case of rebirth or reincarnation by what is called the rational scientific method. Soul after death cannot be perceived by any sense organs. And the scientific method is based entirely upon the sense data. Furthermore, conditions on the two sides of the graves are quite different. If dead were to speak to us, we would not understand his language. Furthermore, the concept of time, space and causality uh, on the other side of the grave is quite different from the concept of time, space and causality on this earth. But I must say this, belief in rebirth or reincarnation is not essential for liberation. I remember once a Christian minister came to me and said, the Swami, I accept everything Hinduism says realization of God, spiritual disciplines, but I just cannot accept the doctrine of reincarnation. Will that stop my liberation? I said, no, that will not have anything with liberation. The condition for liberation, discipline for liberation is quite different. I shall come to that later on. Only Hinduism and Buddhism among the major religions of the world accept the doctrine of reincarnation. But enlightened souls have been born in religions of Semitic origin, like Christianity and Judaism. Enlightened souls have been born, they have realized God, they have attained to salvation, they did not accept reincarnation. Through proper understanding of reincarnation, a Hindu gives satisfactory solution to such problems as the inborn inequality between man and man from the time of birth and also explains the moral order of the universe. This doctrine of reincarnation has been fully developed by the Hindus. But philosophers outside India also accepted it. Plato believed in it. St. Paul said, 
as you sow, so you reap. So that is also law of cause and effect. This law of the effect of the karma, effect of your action, is not limited to this life alone. It is carried to into a future life. Suppose a man dies immediately after performing a very sinful and wicked action. They would say, the Christians would say, well, he will go to hell. He will not be given any more chance. But many Western thinkers nowadays thinks, though there is no rational proof or demonstrable proof of reincarnation or rebirth, yet it is a reasonable hypothesis about what happens after death. It is more probable than improbable. One can live by it as if it were true. The question of hereafter of the soul is asked by thoughtful people sometime in this life, death of a near and dear one. You cannot help asking, what after this? What after this? Or suppose you see the death of a child. You cannot help asking, what will happen to him? Why was he born if he is to die so early? I think there is some kind of an epitaph on the grave of a child, somewhere. Epitaph says, if so soon must I be done for, why on earth was I begun for? Why on earth was I begun for? Now, reincarnation and law of karma are in the very blood of the Hindus, as you have in your very blood this concept of democracy, freedom, or social justice. Paul Dyson, a great Sanskrit scholar of Germany, the greatest scholar of his time, he knew Sanskrit, he could speak in Sanskrit, he studied all the Sanskrit books, scriptures. He is one of the greatest authorities on Hindu philosophy. He came to India at one time. He loved India very much. So he came to a city called Jaipur in central India, which was noted for the Sanskrit scholars. He wanted to discuss with some Sanskrit scholars the philosophical problems. So he was discussing with the scholars. Suddenly he noticed one of them was blind. Naturally, he showed his sympathy for him, that he should be blind like that. And the man said, without any kind of sadness, well, I did something in my past life, and I am born blind. There is no anger against the parents, against the family, or against the midwife. No, he took it entirely upon himself. So a Hindu 
take the responsibility of suffering on his own shoulder and tries to face it calmly and with serenity. He also faces the future with courage and hope. The Hindu believes even the most wicked man can attain salvation, liberation through self-effort and God's grace. Well, you see, it is very interesting. In India, when a Hindu succeeds in business or he gets a lot of money unexpectedly or honor, people congratulate him for his past good karma. You must have been a good man in your previous life, so you have earned all this money and honor and success. He is congratulated for his past karma. It is in our blood. Or when a Hindu suffers from sickness or he loses his fortune, he feels it is his own karma, past karma, bad karma, and he is paying off an old debt and he does not try to understand present life by this life alone. I think it was Chesterton, yeah, Chesterton who said, and which can apply to this, what I'm saying, what does he know of England, who only England knows? She was an imperialist, you see. So Hindus also say, what does he know of life? Who only one life knows? Present life is only a link in the chain of many births and deaths. And in every birth, he is given the opportunity, facilities, to practice spiritual disciplines. And thus, finally, he attains to liberation. Now, there are three broad views about what happens after death. You know the agnostic view, which is very fashionable nowadays, especially among the intellectuals and the scientists. They say there is no rationale of knowing the souls hereafter. The editor of a paper once wrote, my grandfather believed in hereafter and he thought that life would be unbearable without this belief in hereafter. And my father doubted hereafter but hoped for it. And as for myself, I confess that prospect of hereafter arouses more dread in me than anything else. And my children say, so far we are concerned, we don't care for neither. We don't care for nothing about it, one way or other. And when I talk to my friends, they say, go slow, one world at a time. Now, there are agnostics, even from the olden times. In the Upanishad, you see, the student approaches the teacher and asks this question. There is this well-known doubt among people about what happens after death. 
Some say the soul exists after death, others say the soul does not exist. This is agnosticism you find in the Upanishad. But an agnostic can lead a good life and face death very calmly. An agnostic will say to himself, death is a necessary end, will come, when it will come. So there are many noble-minded agnostics. They remain unperturbed, undisturbed. They show some sort of stoic calmness at the approach of death. But what they feel inside, I do not know. It is true, they miss a joy of dying, which St. Paul expressed, O oh death, where is the sting? O oh grave, where is the victory? Now this is the agnostic view. Then there is the materialistic view, that materialist denies existence of soul as a spiritual entity independent of the body. After death, there is complete annihilation. This thought was not unknown in India. There was a well-known philosopher. We accept his philosophy. We recognize him as a philosopher. In India, anybody that thinks is a philosopher. Anybody that asks questions is a philosopher. So this man said, his name was Charbaga, that once the body is reduced to ashes, it never comes back. It is finished. There is no soul, there is no God, it is all invention of the hypocritical priests. Then what should do? How should one live? And he said, well, as long as you live, live well, eat well. Even if you must borrow money, borrow money by all means. Never think of paying it back, your debt. But live well, because you will not come back once the body is destroyed. The word Chatbaka means a man who always says sweet things. Sweet things. Now what can be sweeter than this? Live well, as long as you live. Borrow money. Don't pay it back. Eat well, so on and so forth. Then of course there is the Christian view with which you are all familiar that eternal happiness in heaven for the meritorious but that eternal happiness can be very monotonous. We enjoy Thanksgiving once a year. If Thanksgiving comes every day, I think you get tired of it. Furthermore, according to Christians, the eternal happiness in heaven is the result of the meritorious action done in this life. Now, according to Hindu philosophy, any result that comes from a cause, that result cannot be eternal. The result endures as long as the momentum given to it by the cause endures. Then it is exhausted. So even those who go to heaven, 
after the effect of the meritorious action is exhausted, he comes back to the earth. And furthermore, the Christians say that in heaven, one enjoys these pleasures, happiness, through a subtle body. Anybody, according to Hindu view, whether gross or subtle, consists of subtle parts. And anything that consists of parts must be destroyed when the parts come apart. A house consists of parts, an automobile consists of parts, and sometime or other, the parts that hold together the house or the automobile, the parts will come apart. So a subtle body is not a permanent thing. And furthermore, they just say that in heaven, one enjoys immortality for all the time. The Hindu philosophers said, eternal life, immortality, has got nothing to do with time. It is beyond time. There is also the problem of eternal suffering. You read in the Christian scriptures, Hindus also do not like that idea. This kind of eternal suffering is inconsistent with the impartial love of God for all his created beings. God created man after his own image. The Bhagavad Gita says, all living creatures are parts of mind, eternal parts of mind, the Lord says. You read in the Bible about the prodigal son. Also you read that the shepherd cares more, feels more for one lost sheep than the 99 he has in the fold. So eternal suffering in hell is inconsistent with man's innermost nature. He must be given a chance, one chance or many chances, to get rid of his imperfections. Well, you see, you are to also look at it from this standpoint. A man commits sinful action. Not that he wants to do it, but he cannot help it because perhaps he is born in a family where the environment is not very conducive to a spiritual life. Or perhaps he is exposed to others who persuade him to indulge in sinful action. He indulges in sinful action, maybe for some time, and then he repents. If a man is to suffer eternally for an error, we Hindus call sin an error, mistake, he has made, which lasted maybe for a short time, and for that short mistake, if he is to pay eternally, that is really irrational. Hindu theory, in contrast to the agnostic view or materialistic view or the Semitic view, Christian view, Hindu theory is based upon the nature of the soul and its ultimate relationship with God. The ultimate reality behind the universe is called Brahman or pure spirit birthless, deathless, ageless, transcendental, and also 
the unchanging entity behind man, behind the changing body, mind and the sense organs. This unchanging entity is called the soul. While the Hindus investigated into the first principle, they realized after many years of search that this Brahman behind the universe is one with the soul or Atman in man. They are identical. Microcosm and macrocosm, the individual and the universe are not different from each other. The knowledge of man, according to Hindus, leads to the knowledge of the universe. We can understand the knowledge of reality behind the universe if we start with our own self. This enquiry about the nature of soul makes the vast difference between gods, men and subhuman beings. According to Hindu view, gods in heaven well, are always absorbed in the enjoyment of material pleasures. They drink, they eat well, they live in palaces. They are not interested about self-knowledge. Only when they are through with their enjoyment in heaven, they come back to the earth and then they begin to investigate. Or take the case of lower animals, subhuman beings. Well, subhuman beings are interested in eating, sleep, and propagation of species. These are the three principal preoccupations of the subhuman beings, animals, birds, etc. They do not develop reason. They act through instinct. Reason develops on a human level. Consciousness, which is a sort of instinct at the subhuman level, that consciousness becomes self-conscious. At a certain stage of evolution, a man asks himself this question, who am I? Whence am I come? Whither am I going? Hindu philosophers regarded this knowledge of self as dearer than the possession of children or wealth or even the rulership of the vast art. They further believed, Hindus, that our attraction for each other is not the attraction of the flesh, but is the attraction of the spirit for the spirit. As you read the famous passage in the Upanishad, the husband loves the wife, not for the sake of the wife, but for the sake of the self, the spirit. It is not the flesh that attracts the flesh. You see, in the butcher's shop, many carcasses are hanging, but they don't attract each other. So it is the spirit that attracts. But this human attraction, it is the attraction of the spirit, but it is distorted by our impure mind and sense organs. Therefore, human affection, it is not 100%. It is not 100% perfect. 
the man, if a man loves another, as he loves another more and more for the sake of spirit, his love also becomes more and more perfect. Therefore, a Hindu philosopher says that a man should sacrifice the family for the sake of the society. He should sacrifice society for the sake of the community. And he should sacrifice everything for the sake of the self. Now, in the conclusion about the self reached by the Hindu philosophers is that the soul is divine, it is spirit, it is perfect, it is immortal. We also admit, though in reality there is only one soul, we also admit the multiplicity of souls from the relative standpoint. Suppose you have a dish of water and the moon is reflected. If the water is agitated, you see many reflections. So, when the soul is reflected or pure spirit reflected in matter and mind and they are always vibrating, so you see many souls. So when you speak of birth, death, and this you have to remember, when you speak of birth or death or hereafter, we are not at all speaking of the real soul of man. It is not born, it does not die, it does not go anywhere. It only refers to the apparent soul created by our ignorance. The Upanishad compares man to a seed. The seed grows into a plant and plant dies, leaving behind seed for the future tree. Likewise, the soul assumes a body, it exists, it grows, it begins to decline, the body dies, but the soul assumes a new body. So it is said in the Bhagavad Gita that as a man discards his used up garments or when he has outgrown the garment and puts a new garment, so also the soul discards the old body which has served its purpose and assumes a new body. I suppose this accounts for the death of a child. Perhaps the child has got the experience in a year or two or in a few months even, or maybe in a moment has got the experience for which the child assumed that body and therefore the child discards the body. Now, how does the soul assume a new body? It has been discussed in detail in the Upanishad. As the man approaches death, his sense organs gradually become impervious to outside stimulus. He does not hear, he cannot see, 
he does not even think clearly. Now this is all based on the scriptures. On the hour of death, the soul comes to the heart and there the soul is surrounded by or encased in a sort of subtle body which consists of the impressions and tendencies of the life. And then being encased in this subtle body, it elongates itself, stretches itself, and then takes care of the new subtle body and leaves this body. They give the example of a caterpillar or a leech. A leech creeps to the end of the blade of a grass and then elongates, stretches itself and takes hold of another blade and it gives up this blade. Likewise, the soul gives up this body and then it enters after going through various stages, various experiences due to the past karma, the soul enters through food into a man's body. And finally, the soul through the sperm of the man finds itself in a woman's womb, future mother's womb. Now, according to Hindus, the selection of parents is entirely our responsibility. The thought at the time of death consists of unfulfilled desires. So, the soul selects parents who will give the soul all the facilities to fulfill those desires. Suppose you want to enjoy wealth or scholarship or social position and if you die with that strong thought in your mind, your soul will select parents or family or environment where you will have facilities to fulfill those desires. Now, thus he wanders from one body to another, seeking peace and freedom. And after going through the entire gamut of experiences, he realizes that as long as he cherishes desire, he will have no peace, no freedom. Then he gives up all desires and attains to liberation. Now, I would like to say a few words about karma or action. According to Hindu view, these are the technical subject, but I shall try to make it as simple as I can. According to Hindu view, there are three kinds of actions. One is called prarabdha, the Sanskrit word, which means the action which begin to bear fruit from the moment of birth. That is determined by the strong, intense, unfulfilled desire at the time of death. So during the lifetime, we cherish many, many desires. But some desires are very strong and very intense. And we are conscious of them at the time of death. When we know we are going to leave this body, we are going to leave this earth, well, those desires become very strong. 
and those desires determine our next birth, a sort of blueprint of life. There is a very interesting story in the Ramayana. I think you would like to hear it. Now, Ramayana describes the struggle, the war between Rama, an incarnation of God, and Ravana, the king of the monsters. He lived in Siloam. Well, he was a very bad man, sensuous man, greedy man, lustful man. So what? He, one day, forcibly took away Rama's wife when Rama was absent. And he brought her to Silo in his capital. He wanted to seduce her, but she resisted. So there was a fight between Rama and Ravana. Now Rama's followers were all monkeys. Ravana's followers were all monsters. Well, I suppose it will be a romantic description to describe those primitive people anyhow. So many monkeys and many monsters were killed during the war. And then after the war was over, when Ravana himself was killed, then it was since that all the followers of Ravana were going to heaven. And all the followers of Rama were going to hell. So Rama's brother was surprised. Rama's brother said, Brother, what is this? Your followers, those who are devoted to you, and they are going to hell. And the followers of that wicked man, monsters, they are all going to heaven. How could that happen? Then Rama said, you know, the thought at the hour of death determines the future of the soul. Now, look at these monsters. When they were fighting, what was there in mind? What thought? Just to kill me. Kill me, Rama, Rama. So as they died, they always, you see, had this thought of Rama. Kill him, kill Rama, kill Rama, kill Rama. So because the thought of Rama at the time of death, Rama is God, so they are going to heaven. And look at my followers, monkeys. And what they have been thinking? They are thinking of Ravana, monster. Kill him, kill him. So when the monkeys died, it was the thought of that Ravana monster was in their mind. So what I think it means is that the author wants to impress upon our mind to remember God at the hour of death. There is a story in the Hindu scripture of another man who was extremely wicked, who always indulged in wicked actions, and he died at the age of 80 or 85. When he was dying, he exclaimed for his son, whose name was Narayana. And he said, Narayana, Narayana, he wanted him to come near him, and he died. And because he mentioned the word Narayana, which is the name of God, he went to heaven. He was liberated. Well, all these stories have just one lesson, I believe, is that fill your mind with the thought of God at the hour of death. But you cannot fill your mind at the hour of death with God, idea of God, unless you cherish him all through life. 
in some form or other. As Sri Ramakrishna used to say, one should cherish God or spiritual thought, just like a toothache. You have the toothache, you do all your daily business, you go to office, you work in the laboratory, you entertain friends, but a part of your mind is always on the toothache. Likewise, no matter how you are preoccupied with the world, always cherish God with part of your mind. Then at the hour of death, the thought of God will come to your mind. I suppose that is the reason why all religions prescribe some sort of religious rites at the hour of death. The Christians give sacraments, so on and Hindus also do those things. But the thing is, if you do not really love God, if you don't cherish him in heart, well, the priest may utter holy words, but your mind will be either on your pet animal or your house or your possession. So you will not think, you may mechanically repeat, but your thought will not be there. So this is one action called prarabdha. It is produced by the strongest desire which you cherish at the hour of death which determines your next birth, which gives you a blueprint of life as it were. And according to Hindu view, no one can completely escape the result of this action. Even an enlightened man who has realized God, he shall have to bear the fruit of the action which started his body. As Sri Ramakrishna used to say, a man was born blind as a result of his past action. He realized God, but he still remained blind. But it happens that through intense love of God, you can reduce the intensity of effect. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, if your past karma determines that you should get a blow of axe, well, if you lead an extremely spiritual life, there will be a prick of the needle. Now, this is one karma. Now, there is another karma, which is called the stored-up action. As I say, in this life we perform many actions, good, bad, indifferent, and all the tendencies are stored up in our subconscious mind. Only the strongest tendency begins to function at the hour of death, but others are stored up, and they will produce fruit in a future life. And the third karma is called the future action. The action which you are doing now, that will also produce the effect in a future life. So there are three kinds of karma. One is the work that has started bearing fruit, which you cannot avoid, but still, if you love God, and when suffering from physical agony on account of a past karma, you can lift your mind to God and you will not feel the intensity of suffering. And with death, this karma comes to an end. Then there is the stored up action, the result of the tendencies which will bear fruit in a future life. And there is the future action, the action we are doing now. They will also bear fruit in a future life. Now, in the case of an enlightened man, as I said, he cannot escape the prarabdha karma, the action which has started 
our this life. But other two actions, the stored up action or the future action, that will not produce any result in his case. Because he realizes with enlightenment, the whole world is a dream, everything is illusion, unreal, and therefore he avoids birth and death. This is very well illustrated. This is a very difficult subject, I know. Uh, it is very well illustrated by the example of a hunter. A hunter goes into the forest to kill a deer and he carries with him in his hand a bow and on his back quiver of arrows. He sees from a distance an animal. He fixes one arrow on the bow and shoots it. And then to be sure that he has hit the animal which he considered to be deer, as soon as the arrow leaves the bow, he takes a second arrow and fits it. And suddenly he realizes that what he killed was not a deer at all. It was a cow. And a cow is very sacred with the Hindus. Well, what he does? He becomes disgusted with himself for killing a cow. So he throws away the second arrow which he had fixed on the bow even he throws away the quiver, taking a vow of not to use it again. But the arrow which has left his hand and hit the cow, that arrow cannot be recalled. It has left, and it must find its target. Likewise, the karma which has produced this body, that karma cannot be recalled. But you can nullify. You don't have to suffer from the experience of your stored up action as the hunter throws his bag of arrows. Even you don't have to shoot the second arrow. So you see, there are certain objections. I'll just take five minutes more perhaps. There are certain objections against the law of karma, which we often hear. Well, they say the law of karma is the cause of India's suffering. A man who believes in law of karma, he says, well, if a poor man suffers, that's his bad karma. Why should I bother about it? He's suffering from his own karma. Well, I know that is partly true. Many people give that excuse. But then you should also remember, if you see a poor man, a man who's suffering, if you help him, you are creating for yourself good karma which will help you in the future. And then there's another objection. If the cause always produces the effect, if everything is determined by our past, then where is man's freedom? The man is absolutely not free. Well, it is maybe partly true, but it is not wholly true. The cards of life, you know, playing cards, the cards of life are given to us created by our past karma. We cannot select them. They are with us. But we can call the cards as we please. And we can lead what suit we will. And as we play, either we gain or we lose. Whether you gain or lose, that depends upon your selection of the cards. But the cards are given. So there is your freedom. 
Then also, there's an objection. I hear it many times from the Christians. If we must pay fully for our past action, then where is the room for divine grace? Many people, you see, lean upon divine grace to wipe out everything. Well, that's a big subject. Anyhow, taken as a whole, I believe that we pay for our own debt is better than the other theory. That we can continue to commit sin. We can continue to indulge in sin, hoping that someday God will send his angel or the only begotten son to redeem us from our sin. I think the other theory is more rational. So this is law of karma, which determines our rebirth. Now a word or two about liberation. Liberation is achieved through the attainment of knowledge, the knowledge of soul, or knowledge of God. Holy Mother used to say, the very beautiful thing she said, the spiritual progress or spiritual realization does not mean anything extraordinary, anything supernatural. It only means the expansion and deepening of your knowledge and consciousness. Therefore, a Hindu prays every day that may he awaken our consciousness, may he deepen our understanding. Now, how does a liberated man act? If the Hindus believe one can attain liberation in this very life, enjoy the fruit of liberation. Well, he's like a person who, having been sick, is well again. The Sanskrit word for good health is shastha. Shastha means to get back your own natural state. So a man, according to Hindu view, is by nature, he's free. His soul is free, always liberated. But this veil has been created by our ignorance. So when you remove the veil, nothing extraordinary happens. You just get back your consciousness of soul's divinity and immortality. It is like the blind man receiving his eyesight. Or it is like a man who is asleep and who dreams of many unreal things. He is awake again. He can lead a very active life, a liberated man, but he is never involved in action. He may be subject even to physical suffering or emotional suffering or mental agony, but he is not overcome by them because he knows his true nature, always free, always free, always illumined, always at peace. He is never frightened by the thought of death because he is convinced immortality of soul. Not theoretical conviction, but he has actually experienced it. Well, what happens to him 
after his death. In the case of an unenlightened person, ignorant person, his soul goes to different heavens or different planes. But in the case of a liberated man who has realized his divine nature, his soul does not go anywhere. Where did it go? It is omnipresent, it is everywhere. What is the space which it will occupy? So it does not go anywhere. Here in this body, it merges at the hour of death into the Supreme Soul, which is true soul, from which he has been separated only by a veil of ignorance. Well, the river goes into the ocean. The river is limited by banks. It has a name and form. It goes into the ocean and it becomes one with the water of the ocean. And there you cannot separate one river from another. Likewise, a spiritual seeker, after the attainment of liberation, he goes into the supreme soul and there he loses his name and form. He merges himself into that supreme soul. People say, well, then do we lose our individuality? Well, that's another question. But only I can say, the river, which has merged itself into the ocean, if it wants, it can again rise up from the ocean in the form of water vapor. It can become the cloud. It falls as rain water on earth. And then it becomes a river. It has associated name and form. But as it flows on, it fertilizes land on both sides. So a liberated soul also can assume a body of his own free will in the service of others, if he so wants. Swami Vivekananda said he will be happy to be born again and again, even as a dog, if he can be of any service to others. But that is the case with extremely rare souls. Om Do Shanti Tantariksham Shanti Prithivi Shanti Rapa Shanti Oshadaya Shanti Vanaspati Shanti Vishye Deva Shanti Sarvam Shanti Brahma Shanti Shanti Deva Shanti Om Shanti 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 Peace be unto earth Peace be unto heaven Peace be unto interspaces Peace be unto fire, water and other elements Peace be unto men Peace be unto all Peace be unto peace Peace Peace, peace be unto us, unto all living beings.